Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton, and I have with me a not very special guest. Are you typing, John, as you're talking to me? No, no, I'm just I'm just lowering the volume to, uh, to shut you up. Okay, John Kelly. You know, that's like one of the golden rules of podcasting is you don't type when you're talking to someone. John Kelly, you are soon to be out of a job at the White House, but... but <laughs> Uh, before we get to all that, I have a very special guest, um, Jason Freed, who is an incredibly thoughtful CEO, entrepreneur, uh, who has a tech company not based in Silicon Valley. Um, he's written several incredible books, and his latest book, which is really important for our relationship, John, is It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. It's about how <laughs> technology is making us work like 80, 90, 100-hour weeks, and it's total bullshit. We don't actually have to do that. We can turn the technology off and tell our editors to go away and leave us alone. Um, but afterwards, we're going to talk about a few things in the news. What are those things that we're going to talk about, John? I think we'll probably talk about the latest Facebook revelations, uh, how culpable they are, how how much they're owning up to it. And, and the big news that's dropping right now is, of course, that Mattis is resigning, um, effective in February. It, it, it seems as, the Trump, as uh, Trump prepares to go to Mar-a-Lago for 16 days, all hell is breaking loose and the shit is hitting the motherfucking fan. That should be the title of our episode, The Shit is Hitting the Motherfucking Fan. Um, and we'll, well, we'll, we're going to get to what's going on inside the White House because it seems like it's all just kind of falling apart in such a sad, happy way for the holidays in New Year. Anyway, um, let's jump to Jason and hear what he has to talk about. It's a great conversation. We end up getting into job loss and AI and you name it. Um, so uh, stick around, everyone, for the John Kelly and I uh, after the show. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, so we have a lot to get to today. Um, thanks for flying all the way to LA just to come on to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Uh, you have a new book out. Mm -hmm. What's it called? It doesn't have to be crazy at work. Uh, which I'm not sure I believe, but you're going to convince me <laughs> by the end of this podcast that I don't actually need to do the podcast. I don't have to work or anything. Um, before, before we get to all that, so you've been in the tech world for how long? Well, uh, since at least 99. We launched our business in 99. And you didn't die with the tech bubble back then? No. How, no. Is, how did you survive? How did we survive it? Well, it's, we had a few bubbles, I guess, 2001, 2008. I mean, we just kept our company small. So back in 99, we were four people. And so, you know, it doesn't take much to keep four people going. So we had, so we, we had lunch a couple of months back, and I remember saying to you, you know, your company's done really well, uh, Basecamp, um, it's grown, it's, you have 58 employees now or something like yeah, that. 55. And I'm sure you have had acquisition offers, right? Yeah. Why not just sell the company and like go live on the beach or something? Because I don't want to live on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> I like to work. You know, I like to do my thing. I like to, to build a company. I like to build the product. I like to work with the people I work with. I like to have a job. Yeah. And um, I basically have created this company 
um, like I've created the job I want to work at. And so and why you, would I want to get rid of it? You still enjoy it? Yeah. Okay. So, so here's the question. You're not in Silicon Valley. Right. Does that help you? I mean, it seems like if you were in Silicon Valley, you would have a different mindset where you'd be like, yeah, I want to make a billion dollars and sell yeah. this to Google and not work. I think it helps. I think it helps. We're in Chicago primarily, although we're remote. So we have people all over the world that work for us, but we're based in Chicago. So we're not part of that scene where we don't really, we don't get sucked into all that behavior. Although it's of course everywhere now. So it doesn't really matter. Even companies in Chicago are trying to emulate Silicon Valley companies. So it's kind of, it's leaked out, unfortunately, but I've just like, I don't want to work for someone else. I don't want to stop doing what I'm doing. I want to do this for 20, 30, well, we're, we're 20 years in now, so like maybe I can do it for 40 years if I'm lucky. That'd be a great career for me. I'd be happy to do that. All right, so let's get to your book, and then we'll come back to all this stuff. Yeah. So you're, you've written a few books, um, and your latest one is, is essentially about the fact that we now live in a culture where people are constantly working. Uh, you know, the Steve Jobs bragging about the 80-hour work week. Um, everything's kind of melded together, you know, endless meetings, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. What made you decide to write this? And then I want to understand how you actually believe people can not work as much. Yeah, sure. So, um, well, there's a trend going on, which we don't like, which is, you know, crazy hours, crazy work and people bragging about it, bragging about lack of sleep, bragging about just endless work and, and, and this sort of culture of hustle. Uh, and the endless hustle, side hustles, hustles, the whole thing, right? So that's kind of going on right now, which we don't like. But I've been, I've been talking to friends over the last few years, just like, you know, you, how's work? How's it going? And everyone just said the same thing, like, it's crazy at work. I'm like, what do you mean it's crazy at work? What does that mean? And you dig into it and like, well, I'm super busy all the time. I'm like, super busy? I'm not super busy. What is super busy about? What does that even mean, <laughs> super busy? Um, working 80 hours a week, working on the weekends, have conference calls on Sunday. I'm on vacation, but I have to call in every once in a while. I'm like, well, that's not a vacation if you're calling in. Like, that's not, you're still working, you know? So I just start hearing this from people. And of course, you see people bragging about working forever. And um, we don't work that way. We've never worked that way. And I just thought it was time to, to share our point of view on this, which is that we think that's fucking crazy to work that way and to, to always be on and always be available and have the expectation of immediate response. Whenever someone asks you a question, you got to get back to them instantly. I just don't think it's healthy. And I think there needs to be a counterpoint. So we're, we're that counterpoint. So, but if you, so there's two things there. There's one is that technology has made it so, you know, you can, you can expect that someone's going to be here instantly and uh, you can text them and they're going to respond. Right. Um, uh, it's funny. So I, uh, in Hollywood, um, when you call like an agent or like uh, someone, you know, for a, that yeah. you're interviewing for a story or something, uh, they always say, it's really funny. They still act like it's like 1980 and they're like, I can't get that person right now. I don't know where that person right. is. Let me see if I can find them. And it's like, no bullshit. You actually do know where the fuck they are because they have a phone and they have text messaging and they have email and all these things. And yet they pretend that they live in this other world. But... You can't, I can't do that. If my editor emails me and is like, hey, I need you to hop on this call or something, what am I going to do? Say, uh, I, I can't get Nick right now? <laughs> you could say, I'm busy. I'm doing something else. Like, I think the thing is, is technology has made it easy to reach out, but you don't have to accept that handshake instantly. Like, you can say, like, someone sends you a text. If someone sends me a text, like, I don't, because it took them a second to send it doesn't mean I need to get back to them in one second. I get back to them when I have a free gap in my day where I look at my phone and go, oh, there's some messages waiting for me. So I think it's about how you receive the, right now the, the sender is in control. Um, the sender sets the terms, the sender uh, sets the medium, in fact. And I think that if you flip that and go, look, this is my time that you're asking for. This is my time you want. This is my answer you want. I'll give it to you when I'm ready. Everything ends up working out all right. 
like if you tell your editor you can't get on this call right now or hey i'm i'm unavailable what about tomorrow at three they'll be like okay that's fine let's do it tomorrow at three but you so you we said, assume that everyone's like has to have everything right now but like you can say no hey if my editor's listening uh just don't call <laughs> me for a few days okay yeah <laughs> um it so you said at your company it's you what you have like a 40 hour work week that yeah. everyone works but eight hour days now wh- what is what percentage of that is tied to the fact that you choose not to work an 80 hour work week if you had decided like okay Everyone, I'm going to be there seven days a week. You know, won't your employees follow suit? Yes, and that's the key. Is I think you you uh, you set the tone as the as the leader or one of the leaders, and it's an executive. Like if if it's crazy work, it's because it's it, the executive likes it being crazy at work, or the CEO or the whatever owner. Um, they set the tone, and, and people follow. And so, um, you know, I work eight hour days, roughly, sometimes less, oftentimes less, and that's enough. Like it's just enough. So how do you how does someone listening to this podcast who's not the CEO convince the CEO to work less? Well, I think at some point, you know, you got to figure out which battles you're going to, you're going to, although I hate using that term too. I hate I was, pick, about, pick to, I was about to go, yeah. I was about to go into yeah, that. Yeah. Cause we book. talk about that yeah, in, the book. in the book. Um, so that's, I don't want to say that, but um, I think, you know, uh, you have to pick which garden to cut. <laughs> Let's say which grass to cut, tr- trim. <laughs> I mean, you got to figure out like, um, why are we working this amount of hours and what is it doing to your employees? Like there's actually science on this now. Like what is the science? Well, like you're, you're, I don't have the studies in front of me, so it's hard to quote the Just science. Make them up. No one I'll cares. <laughs> Basically, you know, a- after a certain point, like after it's about eight or nine hours of actual work, which you're not even doing anyway, when you work eight hours, you're not really doing eight hours work, but it's just like, it drops off a cliff. You're not as creative anymore. You're not as thoughtful anymore. You're not as patient anymore. You can't work. You can't sustain that level of focus for that amount of time. So this 80-hour work weeks, which are like 10, 12-hour days, essentially, depending on how you actually add it all up. And if you work weekends and some days are longer, um, you're not actually getting that much more work done. You're probably scrambling a lot. The amount of time you're putting in is probably not as valuable as if you just were focused on a shorter amount of time. So I think you can make some simple cases there, but I wouldn't start with the 80-hour work week case. I wouldn't say like, we need to work 40 hours because that's like, that's going to be a hard thing to do. I'd look at the things that are causing the 80-hour work week, which is primarily not that there's more work to do. It's that there's more interruptions during the day. And my day is broken up into these smaller and smaller and smaller chunks of time, which make it really difficult for me. To, I'm talking, when I say me, I'm saying like, it was that, as if I was the employee, to actually focus on anything. I'm being bounced around. People are pulling me away from work every 15 minutes. I've got a meeting. I got a conference call. And like, I don't have time to actually do the work I'm supposed to be doing, which is why I'm working 80 hour weeks. So can we cut back on the interruptions? Can we figure out a way to structure our day where we have at least two or three hours of contiguous time to ourselves? Maybe in the afternoon, maybe we can try this one day a month. Like maybe every, the first Thursday of the month, no one talks to each other or the, 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 the afternoon is totally open for each individual person. No meetings can be scheduled or whatever. And let's see what happens. And I think people are going to go, I liked that day. I want more of That's those a good days. Idea. I like the idea of like scheduling a day where no one talks to each other or yeah. th- there's no meetings. I once had a, a couple of years ago, I, I, I had a meeting at a tea house, like a Japanese tea house. And I, I was slammed at work and I rushed out to the tea house and I get there and I text the person. They say, Oh, I'm sitting in the back right corner. And they were like, our meetings next week. And I was like, well, I'm already here. I may as well have some, I'd already ordered tea. And it was like the nice, I still remember this one hour meeting I yeah. had to myself like two years later. And I was, I said to myself at the time, Oh, I'm going to start scheduling meetings where I just have meetings with myself. Right. Of course does not happen, yeah. but your imaginary friend, Nick my imaginary and Bill friend, or Nick, we have a great yeah. conversation. Yeah. Uh, but it seems like that 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 we we probably did that back in the day, and now we don't. But the que- the question I have is, 
the constant interruptions are all a result of technology. You know, Slack, for Primarily, example. Primarily, yeah. Right? Slack is like my, my, you know, I try not to look at it quite often at work because, you know, during the day because it's just like, what am I accomplishing by doing that? And things, you know, there's these, this software that is supposed to be helping make a work life better, but I feel like it's making it worse. Yeah, there's a few things. So I think one of the worst inventions is the shared calendar. So um, the fact that in most businesses, everyone else can see everyone else's calendar and you can go pick off some time from someone else is actually a terrible thing. Um, at Basecamp, no one can see anybody else's calendar. I can't see anyone else's. No one can see mine. If I want someone's time, I have to ask them for it. I have to say, hey, are you available next week at three on Thursday or whatever? And they can say yeah or no versus me looking at a grid of boxes and trying to play Tetris and trying to figure out like where the space is and then claiming it and sending an, an invitation and having having the, the the request for time be so automated and so systematized that it feels like it's it takes all the pers- the, the human interaction out of it, and then we just kind of trade chunks of time with each other all day, and I think it's really dangerous. So, I think that when you have a shared calendar and you can invite people, and of course you can say they can reject the invitation, but nobody does that. Um, you end up creating a system where people are just taking each other's time. But if you thought of that time, like companies always go time is money, like everyone always says this, right? You would not allow people just to take money off people's desks, you know, but, but we're letting people take time from each other. And I think that's really unfortunate. So there's that, there's the shared calendar, which makes it easy to take other people's time, which means you don't really own your own day. Other people can take it away from you. And then tools like Slack and other sort of, um, real-time communication tools where there's basically a conveyor belt that's going by in time. And if you're not paying attention to that, as it passes your station, essentially, you can't get your word in. And if you don't do that, then you're missing out on the opportunity to have a discussion. And so you're paying attention in real time to many different conversations all day long while they're scrolling by, keeping one eye on the chat room, one eye on your work. It's very disruptive and you can't really focus if you're doing that. One thing that I I found with... um, uh as an author is when I speak to other authors, I always ask them, what is it that they, how do they write? Cause you know, that's a, a time where when you're interrupted or you procrastinate or whatever it is, um, it's the most difficult thing. And, you know, I remember everyone has these things where they like unplug their router or they yeah. turn their point, their phone into airplane mode. Or I, I intentionally go to coffee shops that, that don't have cell service or Wi-Fi. Uh, so that there's no interruptions. Um, uh, do you kind of do you suggest people do that where they kind of get off the internet that 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 perpetual procrastination machine? Yeah, I mean, look, it's your time. This idea that our time is available to everybody else because of technology, I think, is busted. It's your time. It's your day. Turn your shit off. But do you think it, turn you, your shit off? You, like, what's going to happen? Like. The only thing that's going to happen is if there's a true emergency, you're not going to hear about it. And that should happen like, what, once a year? Maybe a true emergency? We're always worried about, well, what if my wife needs to get a hold? Like, yeah, these things can happen, of course. But they also could happen 20 years ago and like we were fine too. So um, I just think that we, we don't need to ask permission to not be available. Just don't be available. The world's going to continue to go on. It's like people go on writing retreats, right, to get away. Or people go to the library and it's quiet. Like, why shouldn't everything be like that? Like our office, for example, is like a library. We base our office, like we do have a physical office in Chicago. And we we um, have what we call library rules, basically, which is that... Um, oh my God, can I come work for you? Yeah, please. <laughs> but here's the idea. Like everyone in the world knows how to behave in a library. Yeah. Cross cultures. You go to a library, it's quiet. Why is it quiet? Well, because people are studying and reading and thinking and learning 
Isn't that what work should be? Isn't that what work so what is? Ha- so what are your library rules? The library rules is that the office is quiet. Like you walk in the office, it's going to be very quiet, just like a library. If you want to talk to someone, you keep your voice down or you go get a room. We have special rooms set up where you can go and have a full volume conversation. And they're pretty much soundproof, not totally, but pretty close. But the idea is like you would behave like you behave in a library. You wouldn't go into a library and just talk really loud out in the middle of nowhere with seven people around a table. Like you, that would be... That would be rude. It'd mm. be disruptive to everybody else. So it's just think about a library and that then work that way. So and it's fine. It works really well. So one of the things that I that I to cut back to this technology thing is that I feel like we're in a world where algorithms know us better than we know ourselves. And and we are constantly kind of at war with Facebook and Twitter and Instagram that are trying to get us to engage with these things. And and when I when you I hear you talking about these things, do you really believe that there could be a world where we actually use technology less in the workplace? No, I don't. Because I think that once the cat's out of the bag, it's out of the bag, basically. So how, but, but yet, so by using technology, you, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like well, Apple has this feature where you can get your text messages on every device and it's, it's it like drives me insane because I forget that it's turned on and I'm like right in the middle of writing something and then all of a sudden there's this like giant stop sign in my face. Yes, I think that so technology no, but like technology doesn't need to equal disruption and, and interruptions. Like there's ways for technology to help us work quieter or deeper or whatever you want to say. Um, and I'll, just one example from Basecamp, um, we have a feature in Basecamp 3, which is a current version of Basecamp called Work Can Wait. And it allows every person to set their own work schedules. Every employee who uses Basecamp, they're in control of their own work schedule. So they could say, I work from 9 to 5, or I work from 10 to 6, or I work from wherever. And outside of those hours, Basecamp cannot send you a notification. So you, you will not hear from work hmm. outside of these hours. So for me, I have Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, and then off on the weekends. So I can, I can go into the system and like if I want to look and see what's going on, but Basecamp cannot reach out to me. It's like in the old days, someone would hold your calls for you, basically, like hold my calls or whatever. That's what Basecamp's doing. Hmm. So technology absolutely can help create boundaries, and this is available today in Basecamp, but there's also other methods of communication and the way the tools are built. So Slack, for example, or any sort of chat-first kind of app, is built for people talking one line at a time, immediate response, instant sending, notifications racking up as one line it happens. Um, and there are there's a time and a place for real-time communication for sure. But um, there are other tools. Uh, Basecamp is one, but also you can just look at email, which are more asynchronous. And they're not, they don't expect immediate responses. They're not designed in a way where they're immediate responses. They're f- longer form. They're more thoughtful, perhaps. And you write something and the expectation is not you're going to get a line back. If you throw a line in, you're going to get a line back. Instead, you might th- throw a few paragraphs in and let someone read it over and get back to you later in the day. Like There's just different expectations, I think, around email versus chat. So so, so the tools can be designed in a different way and have a different ethos around like what's important and what kind of behavior do they want to encourage the users to to take. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Imagine a workplace with no distractions or disruptions. What a perfect topic for this perfect podcast. No endless searching to find the latest version of something. No constantly switching between apps. 
Now imagine a place where everything just flows. At Dropbox, they're creating a new home for all your team's work and the conversations around it. And a suite of tools that maximize inspiration and minimize distractions, all those pings and pongs and things that are trying to get you away from your computer to get your work done. That is all a thing of the past because when teams are in flow, everything just clicks. Visit dropbox.com forward slash flow to find out more. Dropbox keeps teams flowing. Once again, dropbox.com forward slash flow. So speaking of tools, let's talk about Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, uh, So so, um, that's a good segue there. Uh, Mm -hmm. Thanks, folks. I'll be here all week. So one of the things you talk about in your book, which I I hadn't actually thought about before, I just assumed that this was always the case, is that we live in an era now where CEOs use – essentially war rallies to describe business like it's you know you said it before like pick your battles like destroy your competitor like there's like i mean i don't remember like some of the talent war yeah like you know uh, conquering the markets uh dominating a competitor um and there's all sorts of other ones but yeah there's a lot of them like that is, is that a new thing that I didn't know about, or and is and is it isn't that unhealthy? I mean, if you can, if you constantly think of business as war, you're gonna be on, you're gonna be at it eighty hours a week, like totally. in order to survive. Of course, and in fact, it's funny. Like today, so we have a podcast too called the Rework Podcast, and today we put an issue or a, an issue. That's funny. Old, <laughs> uh, an episode out um, about this very topic, and we actually um, interviewed two professors who talked about the implication of using warlike language every day and how it really affects your psyche. And and one example was Steve Jobs um, would talk about like enacting thermonuclear war on Android when Android came up. And it's like when you when when the leader of a group or an organization talks about thermonuclear war or destroying or taking or whatever, it's going to affect everybody because in those situations like in war, you know, morals go out the door. Um, everything goes basically. It's survival. Kill the children. Kill the, whatever it is, right? <laughs> Firebomb. Like that's what happens in yeah. war, right? The people aren't really like deciding who to kill necessarily in war. So um, so I think that when you get into that mindset, you just think that you can you should should and could or could and should do everything you possibly can to win. Otherwise you will die. And so when it comes to business it becomes it, like you know there's antitrust issues, there's things you go and and you sabotage or there's things like Uber was doing with, you know, tracking I think or was it tracking journalists with that gray thing yeah, I forget what it was called ball. yeah right and like you do that because you have to win and it's okay because it's a war and that's a big fucking problem it's a really big problem do you, and but how- and they also quote like art of war and everyone's reading all these war books and like the generals and it's like this is how we're going to run our business because we're you know we're out there fighting it's like no you're not fighting and you don't need to conquer anything but okay so now the only way to change that is everyone changes that. And that's, you know, we're not in like a, uh, some sort of, you know, political drama on USA right now. Like this is like real deal. Like you, if, if Mark Zuckerberg treats his business like that, you know, his competitors can't not treat their business like that, uh, right? Sure, I don't know. Sure you can. You can do whatever you want. It's your business. Like there's a lot of competition in our industry. I mean, we're in the collaborative software world. There's a lot of competitors. Some of them may want to dominate the market. I don't care about dominating the market. I have no interest in dominating the market. We have a different cost structure. We have a different price structure. We have 100,000 companies that pay us every month for Basecamp. Like, we're in great shape. I don't need to have a million customers or 5 million customers or 10 million customers. I don't need to dominate anybody. I don't need to beat anybody. I don't need to take anyone's market share. There's plenty for us, plenty for everybody. So it's all about how you 
see yourself. I don't think that because your competitor does something, you have to do it the same way. I don't think you should, in fact. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna fight a war, there's only one winner, and usually there kind of isn't in some in many wars. But yeah. let's say there is a winner, like you're probably going to lose that if you're fighting a much stronger, bigger force with unlimited capacity. So why even fight? Why even go down that road? Why try? Do you think that this is a something that's endemic to to Silicon Valley? Because you don't necessarily hear, you know. Uh, the guy who owns Barney's talking about thermonuclear war right. on sacks. Like it's, is this something that is specific to the Valley techno- technology? I think it's, yes, I think it's become that way. Um, I don't know where it started. Although like you look at the leaders like Steve jobs, right. And he's talking about thermonuclear war and everyone looks up to him. There's hero worship there. Um, Elon Musk's like sleeping on the factory floor and I don't know what language he uses, but I'm sure it's kind of warlike and like we got to, you know, everyone's out to get us. Oh, like, he's, he, I, the, I, the thing I'll never forget, he, he was talking about how, how hard it is to, to run a, to do a startup and it's like eating broken glass and it, yes, it like, and it's harder than firefighters and it's like, fuck no, you, no, it's not. Of course not. Go fucking run into a burning <laughs> building and tell me that's not harder. Yes. Like, it's such bullshit. And it's such it's such bullshit. So like but but people worship these these guys for what they've done and how they've what they've accomplished technically. And they have accomplished a lot. I'm not taking certain things away from them, but I think that's the wrong path for for companies and we we've taken a different path. And so we we did it. We're a small group of people in Chicago. We're doing great. Anyone can do this and lots of people do by the way. Like there's lots of small businesses, there's lots of larger slightly larger businesses that don't live the Silicon Valley world that are still in the technology world. I wonder if part of it, it's interesting, my wife and I have both been reading Thomas Piketty's Capital and, and mm. talking about, you know, capitalism lately. And there's, and Tim Wu's book just came out, um, which is arguing against bigness. Um, yeah. uh, the idea that companies shouldn't be, yeah. shouldn't aim to be the size of Facebook or, um, you know, multi-billion user companies. And I wonder if there will be a pushback at some point where, we kind of encourage people not to have companies Hope that so. big. I mean, we're pushing back on that hard. I mean, we're just one voice. But here's the thing, though. A big part of this is because of the, the uh, financial structure of these organizations. So they take billions, they raise a bunch of money. In Facebook's case, I don't know what they end up raising, but like Uber's raised over a billion dollars. Um, many of these companies have raised hundreds of millions of dollars. So the expectations are off the fucking charts. So what are you going to do? Like the expectations are you must be enormous to pay these people back. You must be enormous to pay the investors back. And so it all begins there. If you go out and take a bunch of money, the expect there's, there's one path for you. Get as big as you possibly can or go out of business. That's it. Compared to if you don't go take a bunch of money and you, you figure out how to do this on your own, there's a million different destinations along the way that are perfectly fine. Um, and like when, when, when is like, you know, running a $20 million business, when did that become like a shitty business? It's unbelievable that some people would say like, that's not big enough for me. Well, that's just the Silicon Valley mentality, right? right. It Maybe is. we should just get rid of Silicon Valley and everything might be better, right? I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay with that. So yeah. uh, what, when you were writing this book, what was kind of the biggest revelation that you had? Um... Not when we were writing it. I don't think I had a revelation when we were writing it. Because um, you already knew it all. We, we knew that this is like, this is how we work and how we live. But yeah. it's more about um, when certain people read it and send you emails. So there's two types of emails because we have our email address in the back. It's like, so I always want to hear from readers. And they say like, either like, this is bullshit. This, there's no way. That was the email I sent you. Yeah, that's yeah. how we got together. <laughs> so there's no, there's no way. And the other one is like, thank you for writing this because everyone 
told me I was fucking crazy because I only work 40 hours a week. So there's the affirmation, like there's someone else out there like me. And then there's a no way impossible. There's also another group of emails, which is like, like you asked earlier, how do I get some of this going? Cause we're not going to be able to change whole like companies wholesale. So what, what kind of things can I suggest or can I pick off? And I was just suggesting like the no talk Thursdays thing or something like that, just to get a little bit of traction and get some leverage. And um, so that's, there's that. The other thing was that the whole the whole publishing process is still um, archaic. Yeah, <laughs> so there was that. Still, there was that. That no, was just that was a bit of a revelation. I thought it had changed over ten years, but it really hadn't. No, it's it's fascinating. You 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 <sighs> write a book and it you know you're like oh I'll see it on the bookshelf next week and it's like nope yeah eight months later yeah uh, you're putting together the marketing plan and whatnot yeah. All right, so let's let's switch gears a little bit. Um, you and I have talked before, and I talk about this on the podcast a lot about social media, and you know, one of the things. It's, this is still not. It's not really switching gears. This is kind of down downshifting, maybe. Um, wh- one of the things that I find really difficult is that we live in an era where you you can know everything that's happening and you feel kind of, and maybe it's just because of what I do for a living, but I don't, it probably isn't, but you feel kind of this responsibility to constantly know what's going on. And, and at the same time, you kind of look back at your day and you think like, what did I do today? And, and so I'm curious how you structure your time when it comes to like social media um, and those distractions that leave you informed maybe or uninformed. I don't know. Um, uh, and how you balance that? Yeah, um, I've, I'm willfully ignorant about a lot of things. I don't pay attention to a lot of stuff. Um, I'm not checking Twitter for news. I don't react to t- on Twitter about news stuff. I mostly use it just to kind of announce business things and have some debates about business stuff. Um, I'm not on Facebook. I'm on Instagram a little bit, but I just deleted all my stuff. I don't want to support Facebook in mm-hmm. general. Oh, you did? You deleted your Facebook account? I haven't had a Facebook account for a decade and but on Instagram I just got rid of all my stuff all my pictures I deleted them all I still have my account currently but I've deleted everything so I'm in the process of, of ridding myself uncoupling yeah of uncoupling <laughs> all right um, I just found that like um, you know the pace at which information is coming at you is unnecessary. If I read the newspaper, one like actually the physical newspaper, I found to be a much better news source than no, anything it's really, else. It's really interesting. You say one that. time a day yeah. is enough. Yeah. Like it's summarizing what happened yesterday that really matters versus like every fifteen minutes reacting to what Trump said. Like what? What's the point of that? Like what? How is that? First of all, it's not healthy. Second of all, like there's nothing happening every fifteen minutes that really matters. Like really truly matters. I'd rather get a summary once a day or check in once a week or not check in at all and just hear about things occasionally. And like the world goes on and I'm informed enough and uh, I might not be able to get into a deep argument or a, dis- or a discussion about a certain policy that's being, that's in the news right this moment, but I don't need to either. I don't care to, I don't want to. But is that, are you neglecting your responsibilities as a citizen by not? What being- does that mean? What are my responsibilities as a citizen? Just pay attention to, 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 uh, to CNN and CNBC and MSNBC and every 15 minutes to see what the latest bullshit breaking news is. Like everything is breaking now. Everything it's is true. breaking news. Like, so is it my I, response? I, I have a theory that the, the breaking news Chiron at, at CNN is broken. Just, they just, they know, just didn't know how to turn it off. They didn't know how to turn it off. So they just <laughs> leave it up there now. Yeah, could be, <laughs> but everything's breaking news. Everything's urgent. I mean, of course it's not. And so am I shirking my responsibility? I don't know what my responsibility is. If it's to be informed every 15 minutes, like, that's not actually my responsibility. 
Do you, um, it's my a- responsibility is to, is to, is to take care of myself and my family and my, my employees and my customers. Like that's really my responsibility. And also to be like civically engaged to a certain degree where I have a sense of what's happening, but look, whatever's happening right now, you and I are missing it because we're talking for an hour. Is that, are we shirking our responsibility or like right when this is over, are you going to go to your phone and go, what did I miss over the last hour? I guarantee you nothing important. Yes. No, I, I, no, I, I've, I've cut down on my news consumption dramatically, partially because I've just had too much work to do, uh, uh like 80 hours a week worth. Um, but, <laughs> but, but what's so interesting is like this last weekend, I didn't, I wasn't on Twitter or any of that stuff and I w- wasn't checking the news. Um, mostly hanging out with my kids and then working when I had time um, and and reading a couple of books. And I, I think it was like Sunday evening or Monday or whatever it was, there was, I was like, oh, let me just see what's going on. And I open up Twitter on my computer because I don't have it on my phone anymore. And everyone's tweeting about Stephen Miller. And I'm like, what What? What happened? Mm-hmm. Did he quit? Did mm-hmm. Stephen Miller get fired? Right. And then I fi- I'm like, I've got to find out. I have to find out. And then I find out that they're tweeting about Stephen Miller's hair. Yeah. And I'm like, what happened to his hair? Did his hair catch on fire? <laughs> and then I finally find that he like used spray on hair or yeah. something. And I, and I was, it took me like 20 minutes to figure all this out. And then I was like, that's what I was just spent 20 minutes looking for. And then I closed my computer and was just like. Burned it. Yeah. Yeah. It's this manic behavior. So like, these are the things that now represent your responsibility to stay on top of Stephen Miller's hair. Like (laughs) that's what people are doing now. That's what people did on Sunday afternoon. It's broken. It's broken. So it's actually an addiction really is what this is. It's an addiction because if you stay away, I don't know if you felt any sort of ping or pangs to go back, but, but you can, if you like turn your phone off for a day and you'll feel like, shit, I need to do something with my hands now. I'm missing, like I'm missing this whole routine. I think social media is going to be seen as the next cigarettes. I truly believe that in 20 years, we're going to look back and go, holy shit, was this bad for us? And these companies knew it. Because the thing is, if you think about like Philip Morris, what was worse, what, what, the bad part about that is they knew how addictive cigarettes was or were, and they didn't tell anybody. That was the really bad part about it. Um, they knew the science, they knew how dangerous the shit was, and they kind of kept their mouths shut. Um, I think that part of the reason you're seeing Apple do things like screen time and um, I don't know what Android's doing, but they have something similar is because these companies recognize that this shit's bad for us and they want to make sure that they're in early with, with some responsible tools to get so they could say like, we knew this and we're helping people deal with this addiction essentially. So if it's my responsibility to be addicted to Stephen Miller's hair, I would, I'm happy to shirk that. Okay. So this is really interesting. So we, in my family, not, you know, my sister, um, a few friends too, we, we have a little thread going, uh, a text thread cause we don't, you know, use social media that much anymore. Mm-hmm. And, um, we, where every week we share our screen time and it's like uh-huh. a competition to see who uses their screen time less, even though I probably spend more phone more time on my phone now looking at my screen time. <laughs> um, and just yesterday we were doing it. And, uh, and what's interesting thinking about it is, you know, Facebook would never, ever, ever do anything to try to stop you from using Facebook. But Apple can because you already own the phone. Mm-hmm. So it's, it doesn't affect their business model to do that, right? So the question is, is, is there... I do agree with you that we're going to turn around in 20 years. I've been saying this for a long time now, that we'll turn around in 20 years and we'll realize that that social media was like cigarettes, that um, people will not be using it the way they are today. And if it exists, it'll be, exist in a very different form. But let's just say that you, let's just say that I, Jack Dorsey goes off to a, a 10-year silent retreat, right? 
and uh, in Myanmar, and he uh, he says, "I want Jason to run my company." Um, is there a world in which these the CEO, you as CEO of Twitter, can actually have a service like social media that's good for the world that encourages you not to use it as much, or is that just it's a misnomer that? Right. Well, I think it comes down back to business model again. Like, so like Facebook is encouraged, you know, they want engagement is what they're all after all these guys. Right. So, so, you know, they got to get you watching these things. Apple doesn't have to do that, of course. Right. So there's that. Um, if, if I, first of all, I would never want to run any other business besides my own, but if, if I had to, um, uh, you know, you, you want to start thinking about like, what is, what are we trying to do here? Twitter is trying to grow. Everyone's trying to grow eternally. There's no like we're big enough or we're small enough, or whatever. It's just like continue growth. And so I think that you have to break that pattern first. Otherwise you're going to end up doing everything you can to encourage more users to sign up and to get more screen or more, more usage numbers and whatnot, because that's how the street looks at you. And they look at daily active users and all this stuff. So you have to just break out of that and not do that anymore. And maybe run a smaller company. Maybe you run a company, maybe you start charging people for things. Maybe you have a smaller base. I don't know. But as far as like, to me, social media simply just reflects what humans, who, who, who humans are and what they, what they want. I don't agree with that. Okay, let's talk about it. I, so I, I, I don't believe, I, so here's my theory, and sorry if people have heard me say this before, but my theory is that the people who built these platforms, Zuck, Dorsey, um, we can go through the whole list, mm-hmm. they, for the most part, have social social anxiety you can mm-hmm. say like i don't know what the clinical term is for what zuckerberg has other than maybe he's a robot right. but um that someone built in a laboratory and escaped and started it's facebook possible. um yep. totally possible mit oh, they're all out there yeah, they're in boston yeah. uh, but these are clearly people you've spent time with them i've spent time with them they have they have problems actually having conversations with mm-hmm. other human beings mm-hmm. and i think that they built these technologies to help them uh diffuse that and and one of the problems that they have is they they, as human beings, I don't believe Mark Zuckerberg has empathy for other people. I truly do not believe it as part of his DNA. Mm-hmm. And I think that as a result, empathy does not exist in social media, right? And and so you now have people on earth who are using these tools built by people who do not have this thing called empathy or mm-hmm. a lot of it. And therefore, there's no ability to be able to – it's not built into the software. And so my theory is not that that – they are that the software is a mirror of humans. I believe it's it's like one of those funny house mirrors where you kind of look a little oblong and Story. weird. Yeah, because you're you're because there's a sense of anonymity. You mean like it's not the anonymity? It's like it's like um, it's if you there's if no I, consequences. I think that's part of yes, it. Yes, like, that is it. It's yes. like these are private thoughts people have. I think. Yeah. And and now they can say them out loud with no consequences. Like you wouldn't say some of these things to a person, no. even if you like disagreed with them entirely you wouldn't say these things to them to their face in that way but you can because it's it's indirect i think that's what it is it's, this is indirect communication it's it's being sent out you're throwing something over the wall to somebody else and you can't see how they receive it and they can't see how you send it but it's it's being sent and being received but you don't really know who you're talking to it's like you're talking through a wall and i think that that's part of it too i think that's why i think it reflects like a lot of people's internal th- thinking without the consequences of, of having to say it out loud to somebody. So I do think this is just simply, everyone has a microphone now and everyone can talk and say what they think. And, and it's also like, there's this, there's this tribalness about it, I think, that really brings, is really brought out in social media where people gang up and talk about oh, things. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, that's a very human thing. 
tribalism is a incredibly human thing. I mean, but you find your tribe and you, 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 you double down with them. But you wouldn't, you know, if your neighbor did something that you didn't like, you wouldn't get all the other neighbors to go to their house and throw rocks through their window. No. You would be like, oh, that guy's a douchebag. Because, there's, there's the, because it's direct. Yes. And, and, and there's consequences in society. So if you're an asshole to your neighbor, that's gonna, you know that that's going to pay off poorly for you some other time down the road. So you, you do something, I mean, hopefully you do something nice because you're a nice person. But if you get strategic about it, you're like... I want to help my neighbor because they or maybe want to help me or I'm going to need their help down the road. You, you reciprocate. In social media, you, it, there's such a distance and an abstract nature to it that you don't, you don't think about that part of it. So you can just bitch at someone if you want and disagree with someone because who cares? So is your theory that in 20 years, 30 years, 10 years, whatever it is, that it won't exist or it will exist differently? Or what, what, what do you think will happen? Um, and look, we're guessing the future. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I think that people will see it to be unhealthy. I think people will see the constant need to react and respond to things to be unnatural and unhealthy. I think that's what they'll see. As far as like, I think people are going to, of course, talk through technology. Like that's not going to go away. And people are going to share moments in their lives and whatever. You might see more private accounts and smaller groups forming again. You know, like um, I just saw Instagram release this thing where you can do stories now only with your close friends. So you mark someone as a close friend versus sharing with everybody. So I think there's this there's this turn back towards who's really in your circle, like who's, who are your people really versus like everybody who follows you. The other thing is that, that I find really, really weird is that um, in instant or in, in social media, especially Twitter. And I don't know how Facebook works anymore. Do you have to accept somebody if they want to follow you? You, well, people can follow you if you're public or I don't even think you have to be public. I think they can follow you if you allow them to, if you're, if you create a, if you create an account where you allow people to follow, um, and then anything you post public is public. But then if you want someone to engage with you, it has, yeah. you have to accept here's their... The, here's the big problem with Twitter, I think, um, which is that if you at mention me, you can get a piece of my attention yes. instantly. Yes. That's fucking fucked up. Yeah. That's bad. That's mm-hmm. unhealthy and, and terrible. And that's intentional. It is intentional. Although I don't really know if it's intent, like it's intentional. Like that's the way the software works, but I don't know if they like drew it out to its conclusion, which is today... Like, if you want to yell at someone, you can yell at them and they have to listen to you. That's just really weird. Um, I think that's unhealthy. So I think some of that behavior is going to change. But I'm actually more curious about, like, are our brains built to handle 100 dopamine hits a day? I would imagine not. I'm curious to see, like, over the long term, what that actually does to us. Well, my theory is, and I, I, where I question is, is whether this will parlay into, into normal society, the people not like us that are not obsessed with tech and all these things. But like my theory is that we, we, you can't beat the computer. So don't play. Yeah. You can't beat the algorithm. And so for me, that's, that's why, I mean, I, I, I've said this before, but every single human being I know personally from my neighbors, kids, teenage kids to my wife, my sister, you name it, have all, been deleting apps from their phone. Sometimes they reinstall them because they lose the game, but they've been deleting apps from their phone and not using these things as much because they feel their lives. Like when we did that, we did a screen time competition with my sister and she was on Instagram eight and a half hours a week. Oh, shit. That's, you, know how that, you know how long that is? If it were a nine to five job, that'd be a month and a half of her life yeah. every year. Yeah. Like that's insane. It is. It's really bad. And I, so what choice do you have if you can't, if you're losing... But to walk away, and I guess the question is, is do you think that it's going to move beyond just people like us 
to the people who don't think about the technological implications? Well, I think it depends, right? Which is uh, how often or how many hours are people spending on this stuff? If you spend, if you just like jump in every once in a while, like maybe it's no big deal. But if, if people like us in our world who are on it all the time, it's, it's, they're going to be the first ones to leave, I yeah. think, because they're going to be burned out. It's yeah. burnout, basically. Yeah. People are experiencing burnout. So I think, but you can burn out and then you can take time off and come back. I don't know. I don't know what it's going to look like. I do think that that um, what, what what should change is that the receiver of inf- like the the um, so if I log into Twitter, you should not be able to yell at me. Like I should. I'm sorry that I yelled at you. <laughs> you should not be able to <laughs> no, get a I piece of my attention. I completely agree. I completely agree. That's broken. That's just and so that's going to change. I think it has to. Well, I don't think anything's changing at Twitter, well, but yes, true. That's probably you're probably right, but. You're probably right about that. But I think like conceptually, I think that's the kind of stuff people are going to probably want to get more control over who can reach them. Um, I think the circles are going to get smaller. Um, But look, frankly, most people don't have, I mean, like you have a lot of followers. I have a lot of followers on Twitter. Most people don't have that. They've got 50, 100, and then it's not a problem for them. Yeah. You know, you're a public figure, so people can bitch at you about your points of view or whatever. Most people don't, no one's yelling at them. No one's talking to them. Like, no one's hearing I'm them. I'm happy even. to yell at anyone. Just yeah. hit me up on Twitter <laughs> and I'll respond and yell at you. But I think, I think I know, there's a lot of brokenness. And I think the, the thing for me that really bugs me, and one of the reasons I got off, I'm getting off Instagram. I got rid of my stuff, but I'm not gone completely yet, which is interesting, um, is, is um, how it makes me feel about the things I do. So I collect vintage watches. It's something I've, I've done for many years. And being on Instagram has accelerated my collection, collecting. Mm. And I'm, I find myself buying things because I want to show other people what I have. And that really fucked me up when I realized that that's why I was doing certain things. And that really bugged me because it felt like I was not being true to myself. I was now doing things for others, which is what I think social media often is. You're doing things for others. Yep. You're, you're putting on, on airs. So... So that's the reason I've got, I, I'm moving off Instagram is because I don't want to um, do things for other people. I want to make sure if I buy something, I buy something because I want it, not because I want a reaction from somebody else telling me, great job, great buy, great find, whatever. If you're doing things for other people, I think it's, it's in any, it's, I mean, not like you can be nice to other people, but if you're. If you're trying to show the thing that you have so that you, for other people to gratify it, it's it's wrong. Yes, which well, is why I stopped using Instagram a couple of years ago. Yeah, because yep. I just realized that I was it wasn't the things I was buying, but it was the things I was doing, and I just realized why why do I need people to see that I'm doing this? I yeah, don't. Like, I don't. If it's if I'm enjoying it, I'm enjoying it. Yeah. I can take a picture of it. Yeah, but. You know, it's it's really interesting. So the question, one of the questions I have for you, which is a question I struggle with a lot, is, you know, Kevin Kelly was on here last year, and he was talking. We were talking about how there's that the, he believes that technology makes society better, even if it's fifty one percent and worse forty nine percent. It's still the arc of better is still moving in a positive direction, right? And the question I have is, when you look at all the technologies that we use today. There are technologies around, you know, healthcare and car safety and all these things that are actually there. You can't, you cannot argue for ways in which they make the world worse. They predominantly make the world better. I mean, sure, if you put in airbags and seatbelts and ABS brakes, people are going to drive faster and the accidents could be worse. But for the most part, we're saved. They're saving lives. The same with, you know, medical equipment and so on. When you look at all of these technologies, like Twitter, for example, um, the question I have is, 
if it wasn't for those things, there would be no Me Too movement in the way it exists. There would be no Black Lives Matter movement, so on and so forth. But at the same time, there probably wouldn't be a Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and do you think that that is there a world where we kind of this plays out differently, where we slow down with the technology we built, where where we I don't know. Is it better that we're building it? Is it worse? Well, movements have happened all through history without these things important movements. So like people do gather and, and in fact, frankly, like um, protest has become so easy today that I don't think it's it actually as effective. Yeah. It doesn't do anything. You anymore. know, um, in some, some cases it is of course, but like, but, but we, we marching need in the street things. doesn't do what marching in the street used to do. Right. Cause there's a lot of marches in the streets now. And so I think like, you know, anyway, I think that Movements have always happened. History's changed many, 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 many times without this shit, without social media. So um, I don't think it's necessary to, to have change without it. I think it might accelerate change, but what else does it accelerate? Like, you, there's costs, there's, there's, there's um, side effects to all this stuff. And so I think it's actually da- probably damaging more people than it's helping, for sure. And so you wouldn't say that necessarily about a, a new medication that comes out that saves someone's life or, um, or airbags or whatever. Um, so I'm, I, I think it's a net negative. I think that you social do. media is a net negative. I do. Do you think other technologies are a net negative? Well, well that's a broad question. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, I mean, if you really want to go, go into it, I think like, um, anything that in like, well, yeah, I guess most tech, I mean, really, if you look at like the whole system, like the world, um, humans are destroying it and it's because of technology, like really ultimately, I mean, like, you know, pollution, growth, um, uh, um, you know, pesticides, all this stuff we're doing. It's like, it makes it better for us, kind of, maybe sort of, but maybe not in the long term, but it makes it worse for every other species on the planet. I know we're getting very broad here, but so, I mean, like humans are the worst thing that ever happened to the planet Earth, obviously. Do you think that humans will be the, will be the end of, will lead to the end of humans? Yes, I do eventually somehow. But I don't think like, I don't think, I just think that, that humans are basically like a virus. A virus um, uh, lives, on, lives off its host for a while. Yeah. And it thinks it's going to live forever off its host. And then yeah. it realizes it fucking goes too far and kills its host. And then it's over. The thing is like the earth will be here long after we're gone. And animals will be here long after we're gone. And plants will be here long after we're gone. Even if we fucking killed the planet as we're doing now. Like in a hundred million years, like on the time scale of the planet, the planet doesn't care about us. We'll go away. Shit will get bad for a while and it'll get better and, and everything will be fine. But like we're, we are, this is something I've been thinking a lot about lately, which is um, we are not intelligent. We think we're intelligent beings. We are not intelligent. Go on. Right. You've got me here. We're, keep going. <laughs> How can we be intelligent if, if all we do is destroy everything else? Is that intelligence? Destroying everything else? Is that an intelligent move? Like if you think about, you know, like humans are intelligent and all other, all other forms of animals are just, you know, whatever animals, right? Well, they've figured out how to live together. They figured out how to exist together. They have a, they, they, they don't take more than they need. Like that's actually pretty smart, isn't it? Versus our intelligence, which is to destroy everything and just destroy ourselves and make our, our water dangerous to drink, our air dangerous to, to breathe. Um, you know, all the things we're doing, which are killing everything, basically. Um, we're reducing biodiversity, all these things we're doing. This is, these are not intelligent moves. But is, it, is that a bug in our system, do you think, maybe? Or is it just the way we're designed? I think, it's in, I think that a um, uh, bug in our system. I think that um, 
I don't know. But I think I, the thing that the thing that I find that I spend a lot of time thinking about is that is technology how it relates to humanity. So without technology, we would not be sitting here having this conversation that people not sitting here are sure. listening to somewhere else, and and we would be living in caves and we would be you know just animals, sure. right? And it, and it is. People talk about how art is the thing that separates us from 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 animals. I actually yeah. believe it's technology. I yeah. don't believe it's because there. I'm sure there, there are birds that make beautiful art, right? There For sure. Are, and I think that I think that it is technology that separates us, and it is. But at the same time, it is technology that that is is leading to our own destruction. And I and I just wonder if if it's if there's a world where we at some point ever get to this realization and. Can we ever even stop building technology? No. So therefore, we are designed. We're virus to destruct. We're virus. Like that's what a virus does: infects its host, and then it eventually kills it. Or I mean, sometimes the host fights back and beats the virus. But like a lot of things, they just kind of you know they go and they go and they go until they kill whatever the host is, and then they die too. Like you, we're not going to stop this. We're not going to stop this. And and the whole thing I always hear about like. Well, we have until 2024 until like it's the point of no return. It's already past the point of no return. It's probably past the point of no return in the 80s, in the 70s, in the 60s. The industrial revolution was probably the point of no return. How do you feel? How do you feel when when you people talk about um, AI and job loss and what's going to happen in the next X number of years? um, I have so many different thoughts about it. I'm not that up on it really to know really, but I I think that. I think the algorithm is overrated, actually. In what way? Um, I think that we think that um, things are going to be intelligent very quickly, and um, that it's going to be uh, it's going to take over the world fast. I, I just I'm on the side of Elon Musk and 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 I think it, Stephen Hawking and whoever else was like this is actually quite dangerous. Um, I just don't think there's any way to deal with it. But I also don't think that, for example, let me just give you a quick example that's more concrete a few years ago people were thinking like automated cars are going to be are right around the corner i don't think that that's true at all um i think like i i we have a tesla um and that autopilot is fucking dangerous and it's very 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 far away from actually truly being trustworthy completely thoroughly trustworthy which is what you would expect an intelligent creature or being or something to be um, and I, in fact, think that it's highly reckless for them to call it autopilot, first of all. That's another problem. With well, it. that's Elon Musk just being Elon Musk, right? Right, right. But, but anyway, um, it's not as close as we think, I don't think. But um, I do think that, um, that so, like, there's a lot of jobs that will be replaced by, by computers, and there always have been. And then new jobs come up. But I, I, I'm not optimistic on um, removing humanity from decision-making um, because I think that decisions about people should be made by people. And I, so I'm wary about um, taking people out of the role of thinking about humanity and putting that in charge of machines. I don't think that that's really going to be healthy or good for humanity. But, yeah, um, but, but again, back to our virus analogy here, like we tend to do things that we don't think are good for humanity, right? We don't, but, but like, here's the other thing. There's only one, let's, let's get back to the intelligence thing. There's only one intelligent life form, let's call it intelligence that at our level on, on earth. And that's all we would allow to happen. If dolphins all of a sudden became really fucking smart, we would kill them all. Right? Like we would, 
We don't want a threat. And so if there's AI that's really, 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 really smart beyond our means, they're going to look at us like we look at a dolphin or we look at a bird and go, well, you don't need you either. And so like, they're not going to make good decisions about our well-being. Why would they? Why should they? What's in it for them? And them, we're you know, calling AI them, but like, what's in it for them to take care of us? I think it's like, that's where humanity is, is, is missing the point. Like we're creating this thing, maybe not missing the point, but we're creating this thing that we think is going to take care of us and work with us. Why would it? What do we, who do we work with? We're the most intelligent beings on this planet. Who do we work with? What animals do we work with besides dogs? Dogs. Yeah, dogs. Yeah. Because they're non-threatening. Cats. Dogs got smart and cats got really smart, like really smart. They would not be our best friends. So, like, I just don't see too intelligent I think dogs things. are actually really smart in that they're like, I don't really feel like doing anything. So, if I'm just nice to this person, they'll feed me food. And that's maybe it. They, so, maybe they are smarter than us. <laughs> they are. Yeah, they are. Cats are, too. Cats are very manipulative in that way, right? Yeah. But, you know what I mean? Like, there's not room for two highly intelligent life forms or existence. I don't, I don't know if you'd call AI life. You probably wouldn't, but whatever. Eventually, you know. it will be. Yeah. And, like, it's going to do away with us. What does it need us for? It's true. So I, would, I, I don't think that, that part, I don't know when that happens, but that part scares me. Um, I feel right. like I've got two kids, young kids, your age kids. Yeah. And like, that's scary. I'm no, it's a little terrifying. bit terrified totally of the terrifying. future. But like, I think about what it was like in the sixties and what it was like in the twenties and what it was like during world war one and world war II. Like there's been a lot of really scary moments where like the future is fucked over. Well, there's, there's, um, but I feel like we had a sense of, we knew humans were in control of that destiny, even if they were humans we didn't like. And I think you can think there's reason there. There's a chance to like pull things back. I think if AI gets ahead of us or whatever, and it's like, you can't pull that back unless you can unplug it from the wall. Like you can't pull that back. Well, there's, it's interesting. There's this guy, uh, Nick Bostrom, who writes about AI and he uh, runs an institute at Oxford University. And he just put out a paper talking about how there, everything, every technology, if you think about technology as, a, as an urn, and it's every technology is a ball we point out, pull out of the urn. And most technologies are, are white balls. They're like predominantly good. A lot, a lot of them are gray where they could be used for good or for bad. But we eventually get to the point where they're, they don't destroy humanity. For example, nuclear power was also nuclear war. And then as a result of, of the Cold War, there was a standoff where we didn't actually use it because we knew the people in charge knew, oh, well, this isn't going to work out. But what he's saying essentially is that eventually we will pull out a black ball from that urn and there may not be no turning back from that. And it's, you know, it's funny, like I keep, I keep stressing this about the technology and the good and the bad and what's coming. And, and I, cause I just believe that that's what's going to, that's what will be the demise of us. And eventually someone will pull a black urn out and, a black ball out of the urn. And like when I think about my kids and their kids and when that could happen, yeah, it's pretty terrifying. Well, so what do you think is going to happen then? I Over, let's call it 20 years, which is, you know, the <clears> number <throat> everyone picks when it's like kind of far away, but not that far away. I think over the next... Is it going to be that different, really? I don't think over the next 20 years it's going to be that different. I do think that we'll start to see driverless cars. I, I think what's going to happen with driverless cars is that is that the technology is not ready. I think it's incredibly irresponsible of Elon Musk to put it out there. That being said... When you look at the number of hours of human drivers in an accident and the number of hours of dri autopilot code in an accident, human drivers, I think it's like every 90,000 hours of, on, a, on a road, there's a fatal accident with autopilot. It's like so far, it's been like every several hundred thousand. Um, so it's still better than us dumb humans. Sure. Um, but I think that. I think that what will happen is eventually the technology will be ready and and you will one day wake up and there won't just be one driverless car on the road. They'll all be driverless. Um, mm -hmm. 
well, most of them will be. And I think that that's going to happen with a lot of technologies where you're not going to see it happen in a vacuum. You'll see driverless cars and then drones delivering because the, the same code and the same chips and the same AI that exists to make the car driverless is going to be the same thing that exists to make the drones delivery and and so on and so forth. And I think that I think that what you'll see happen is all of that will happen pretty simultaneously, pretty quickly. And but the results are going to be both incredible and terrifying. You know, they'll be incredible because no one will ever die in a car accident again, but they'll be terrifying because 10.5 million truckers will leave their job overnight. Yeah. And yeah. and so what I what I I've been covering tech companies for 15 years now and the it's taken me 15 years to learn that with each each time something comes along it looks amazing and then something really bad happens with it. And we saw that with Trump and democracy and Russia and with this, with something as mundane as social media. And I think that when we look at these future technologies, um, all we should be talking about is what, what bad is going to happen rather than like, oh, it's going to be really cool and you can watch porn in your car as you're driving to work right. or whatever it is. Uh, well, so, right. So I agree with all of, all of that. What, what do you think, though, about like um, things like Amazon? Amazon as a technology, meaning like I can buy something and have it in an hour or have it in, you know, two days for free or the next day for four bucks and the Amazon Prime as a technology. Like, do you think that um, that's a net positive? I don't know. I think it is. I use Amazon religi- religiously. I've stopped shopping there. Have just you? Just recently. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because? Um, I, don't, I don't like, uh, to me, the... The HQ2 thing was was like the final yeah. blow for me. Like, yeah. what the fuck was that about? Yeah. Um, and I just, I don't, in full disclosure, like Jeff Bezos owns a small piece of Basecamp. Um, so I'm just... Not anymore. He just sold it on eBay. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, like, so like, I, I'm just speaking truly for myself here. Um, I don't, I don't like the way that happened. Yeah. And that to me is symptomatic of, of what's gone wrong in capitalism on a variety of different levels and government too. Um, and I've realized like, I don't like, I don't need to buy things and have them the next day. So I, I don't like, I'm now going to manufacturers websites and buying things and shipping's typically slower. I'm going to a store and actually getting it quickly you if you I need it. Go to the store. I actually go to the store. I've been going to wow. Best Buy a lot more now for electronic stuff. And it's like still in I'm actually yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny because it's actually it's nice. Like I need something, I'll go over there and get it, and like I get it, and I take it home and I have it. And like versus um, you know, because like you, you buy stuff at Amazon now, you have a cardboard maintenance problem. You know, you got boxes everywhere. Well, I think it's the larger problem is is it goes back to that conversation at the beginning is that like why does something need to be that big? Um, yeah. And well, it's not, I don't think that it should be. I don't think anything should be. Um, I agree. And I, we also saw this with our book, for example, our book, 90 over 90% of the sales are at Amazon. Huh. That's fucking broken. That's yeah. just, I don't like, I don't have a solution for that problem. It's not like more bookstores would make it easier. But the fact is, is that 90%, they, they basically dominate 90% of the business book market. And that's just seems wrong to me. Or like, and I get what it's easy and they've made it great. It's an interesting thing because they've made the experience great. It's not like Amazon's a bad experience and they're forcing you to shop there or anything like that. It's not like that at all. But at some point I'm just, I've chosen like, we're not going to buy stuff from Amazon for a while, I'll buy something from other stores and spread, spread money around that way. And like, you know, the other thing I've realized is that with Apple pay specifically, checkout has become a lot easier and Shopify and Apple pay too. both of those have made, Shopping at most stores really, really damn good, just as easy as Amazon, yeah. basically. And I'm finding it's like I'd rather give 
all the money to the store or to the to the manufacturer then have them you know lose 30 percent or whatever they have to do wholesale to, to get their products in amazon or rather just give them the money i think it's i think it's better i i think maybe i'll try that for a couple of hours <laughs> <laughs> it's a good start but really like yeah just, like you don't need to shop at Amazon. Like, no, we, I know. All I these know, things we feel it's like we true. need now. Yeah. And it's just like, it's more of a, for me, it's more of an experiment. Like for a month or so, we're not no, going to shop idea. at Amazon. Like the world continues to move forward and everything's fine. Well, it's funny because I shop at Whole Foods and they, and they always encourage you. Do you have the Whole Foods app, the Amazon Whole Foods app? And you pull it out and you scan it under the, the, the thing at the register. And, and you're supposed to like, it's supposed to save money. But like 90% of the time, you don't save anything. It's just yeah. them tracking you. It's a habit. They're yeah. creating habits. Yes. And they're creating an addiction. It's another addiction. These are addiction. These companies are addictive companies. Yes. And I don't, they didn't start that way. I'm not saying like they had this mindset to set, but they've become that. And I think that, I mean, addiction in any way is, is, a, is a dangerous thing, especially when it's institutionalized and it's affecting millions of people. Billions. Well, billions of people are addicted to social media. Millions of people are addicted to Amazon. Addicted to it, literally. You yeah. go, I could, what am I, what, if, without Amazon, I wouldn't have anything. No, you'd have everything you need, you'd still have. Yeah. Promise you. We should try this. Maybe it'll be our, our New Year's resolution for and see, see how it works out. Yeah. Um, all right, last question for you before we let you go. Um, if you had to give someone their 2019 New Year's resolution about making them less stressed about work and, you know, the way that they are totally consumed by it. If you had to give them one piece of advice, what would it be? One piece to like their new year's resolution. I am not going to do X or I am going to do Y. What is it? I think the, the one thing I would say is um, the next time you feel like you have to say yes to something, say no to it instead and just see what happens. So this happens a lot with, for example, with, with um, I hear about it with client services firms, like a design firm, their client will email them at 11 o'clock. People say like, well, Jason, like, you know, what if my client emails me at 10 o'clock? I'm like, well, then you fucking get back to them tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. They're like, well, I ha they email me at 10. I have to get back to them. No, you don't. You set, when the moment you set that expectation and you live, you, you, you see it through and you set the tone, they will continue to demand that from you. But you can just say no and get back to them tomorrow morning and they're not going to fire you and everything's going to be fine. So I think that next moment you're like, I have to do this. Say, no, I'm not going to do that. All right, so you heard you heard Jason, and if it doesn't work out, Jason, and you get fired, Blame Jason, me. We'll, hi we'll hire you. <laughs> we actually have a hiring freeze, so we're not hiring. <laughs> okay, so then if it doesn't work out, I'm sorry, and uh, yeah. thanks for listening. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Jason, thanks so much. The book is It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. Uh, it's a great read, um, and uh, thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Nick. It was really fun. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. So I have someone I'm going to briefly bring on the show, Krista. Hi, everyone. That's my wife. Uh, and a couple of weeks ago, we signed up for The New Yorker in print, uh, and it has changed our life, right? It's been amazing. So one of the great things about The New Yorker is it is one of the best magazines in America today. They publish some of the world's best writers, most rigorous reporting, and most compelling storytelling. Now that we get it delivered every week, and you read it online and whatnot, what are some of the favorite things that you love about it, Krista? Well, first of all, I just love getting it in the mail. It is so much fun to open it up in midst of the bills and all the other stuff. But I love reading about their news, their politics, international affairs, climate change and the environment, pop culture and the arts, science and technology, poetry, few, food, <laughs> humor. Uh, I love the cartoons. You name it. It's great. I love the cartoons, too. That's my favorite part. No offense to the writing. The right, writing is amazing. They are really incredible. Well, you got to mention the tote bag. Uh, well, we'll get to the tote bag in one second. 
<laughs> the, uh, the one of the things that's great about the writing is they do these long form pieces, which I always love finding in the magazine uh, and online about things that you didn't even know you would be so fascinated by, like paper jams and fault lines and heirloom beans and stink bugs wow. of all things. Um, they have uh, home delivery of the print section every week, which we now get. Uh, you can uh, see stories published online every day, 15 to 20 news articles. I've been following along with all of the coverage of Trump this week and Mattis and God knows what else. Um, should we talk about the tote bag? The tote bag is great. Nick walks around with his tote bag. I love he my tote it. bag. So Our three-year-old loves it too. <laughs> so don't wait. If you go to newyorker.com slash hive, listeners of this podcast will save 50% when they enter the code hive. That's, 50%? That's huge. How do you spell hive, Krista? H. I-V-E. That's right. With this special offer, you'll receive 12 issues uh, for just $6 plus you get an exclusive New Yorker. Tote bag. Tote bag. I love my tote bag. So go on right now. Check it out. NewYorker.com slash Hive. It's a great uh, deal, really. It's a great deal for, for absolutely no money at all. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. I'm here with John Kelly, who is just days away from being pushed out of the White House. John, before we jump into the news, I just have one question for you. Are you okay with me completely ignoring your emails, Slack notifications, text messages, faxes, and other forms of communication? No, I'm, I'm not okay with that. Okay, that, that's a deal. I'm going to start doing that from here on out. No, I'm, I'm not okay with that. I think, I think you misheard me. I'm, I'm not okay with that. <laughs> Okay, well, maybe I could like delay responding a little bit, you know, like it's funny that is one of those uh, real millennial things that um, uh, it, it, you know it's good for the culture in some ways where they're they're sort of dictating the parameters of, of working hours, but it's also so annoying too that um, that you know uh, some people feel it's totally unacceptable to email before eight o'clock or after seven or whatever, you know the. The world is is constantly ablaze, and we're just trying to keep up. So, anyway, I, I have my personal thoughts. That's why I'm not a massively wealthy tech CEO, <clears throat> or an author, or anything else for that matter. So, I'm uh, nothing. No, I, I'm nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so, speaking of nothing, um, let's just talk about um, uh, Facebook real quick. So, I um, I I'm kind of shocked that this is all still going on. That uh, that every single solitary week this year, there has been some sort of uh, crazy Facebook story that's come out. Somebody uh, at BuzzFeed this week did a pretty amazing roundup of all of the times that Facebook was in the news this year. And it is, it's an article that seems to scroll to infinity. Um, it's been just one after the other after the other. And what is so astounding to me is that the board of directors – and the U.S. government has done nothing to change anything. Yeah, and, and they're not going to anytime soon, right? I mean, I, I feel like the uh, Sundar Pichai's um, recent uh, uh, hearing in Congress was meaningful in, in how it evidenced how little lawmakers understand about these large tech platforms. I mean, I think that um, uh, you know there were a number of, of uh, politicians asking about <laughs> why their iPhone wouldn't work, and he sort of had to politely deflect and say that that he worked at Google, uh, that he ran Google. So it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to see how regulation happens. And it'll be interesting if a persuasive, charismatic politician like Beto O'Rourke comes in and, and tries to make that case because Silicon Valley has traditionally been a, uh, 
an ally to the Democratic Party in, in terms of, of fundraising and in terms of facilitating the message. I do agree with the, with the story that you wrote this week, Nick, a very good story about how regulation is coming, but I think that it's coming far enough away that these platforms have time to to either self-correct or or uh, or obfuscate and and dodge. The board is a I mean the board is just a grosser thing, right? I mean the the, the board r- r- is doing what the stock market is doing. It's recognizing that in Zuckerberg and Sandberg, they have this like dynamic dynastic all-time leadership team and they've more or less grown every quarter for for a decade and they're willing to to take all kinds of reputational hits under the belief that um, they'll take the money. I think that at the end of the day, um, you know, the, this is a company that has not changed its stripes in over a decade. I do think there was a moment where Zuckerberg kind of seemed like he was growing up. Um, and maybe that was just he was learning how to, you know, he was taking acting classes and getting doing a better job at acting like he was growing up. But, um, But I think that, you know, it's it's just downhill from here at this point now. And what I what I find so amazing is the, just the fact that this company it's just one after the other after the other, and the fact and how untruthful they are, and the lack of consequences. One of the things that was so amazing this week was the report, the Senate report that came out that said, you know, Mark Zuckerberg could come up before Congress and talk about the, all the things they'd found on Facebook relate, related to the uh, uh, Russian meddling in the election. And he didn't, he didn't mention all the things that they found on Instagram. And the Senate, in their investigation, found that it was double the number of interactions on Instagram with Russian-related uh, posts than it had been on Facebook. And this is, I mean... Come clean. Tell us what you're. Tell us what happened. Like you know, say we screwed up royally, and here's everything. Don't just say we kind of screwed up, and here's a couple of things. Um, and well, you know, but I think that one of the issues, though, Nick, is that th- there's no coming clean. Like the company is built on these kind of data relationships. Um, and as, as Tim Cook said, you know, certainly in, in his own self interest, but 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 poignantly, Facebook, their product is your data. You know. Yeah. That's their fundamental product is is taking your data and and distributing it in one form or other to to advertisers that want to pay to align against it. And there's no way that you can you can't get out in front of that because you're always going to find new and embarrassing relationships, business relationships that you have, and and new uh, anecdotes about you know terrifying moments in the culture that that Facebook played a, a part in. I, I think it's an inescapable thing. I think that you know. Just to wrap up the Facebook saga of 2018, there's this the the amazing quote that from the uh, internal message that Bosworth Boz, as they call him, uh, mm. an exec at, um, at at Facebook sent that was that leaked uh, earlier this year, where it said um, he said maybe someone dies in a terrorist attack coordinated on our tools, and still we connect people. The fact that that that's that is a company that's okay with that yeah speaks volumes so my my, my theory is frustrating is is that yeah go ahead i'll tell you my theory um my theory is that at the end of if we have this conversation a year from now i think the user growth will have slowed i think that the advertising revenue will not it'll still be there in the billions but it won't be growing in the way that it has and i think that um, I think you're really going to start to see a huge backlash um, away from Facebook. Does that mean you know people go to Instagram and WhatsApp that, that the, the company owns? That I don't know, but 
but I think that Facebook, the product, um, is has seen its best years. Um, but that's just my prediction. Who knows? You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. All right, listen up, listeners. I am about to give you some free money, legitimate free money. And the way I'm going to do that is the way that I did it with an app called Robinhood, which is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, crypto, all commission-free. If you are not in this world already, don't worry, because it is so simple to use Robinhood. They strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. The app is, without question, one of the most beautiful apps on my phone. It's clear, beautiful data presentation. It's so intuitive. Not only does Robinhood give you cost-free, no commission fees, uh, you can make trades from as little as $10 to as big as however much you want, but they also allow you to look at stocks in collections, which is one of my favorite features. They have the 100 most popular stocks. They have entertainment, social media. Uh, I wouldn't invest in those right now. They have female CEOs. They tell you with their analysts whether you should buy, hold, sell. They can teach you how to invest, how to build your portfolio. And the best part, well, under the, a beautiful looking app, but the best part is Robinhood is giving listeners of Inside the Hive a free stock like an Apple stock, a Ford stock, or a Sprint stock to help you build your portfolio. All you need to do is sign up at Bilton, B-I-L-T-O-N dot Robinhood.com. That's Bilton, B-I-L-T-O-N dot Robinhood.com. That's my last name. And you will get a free stock when you sign up. You have to do it. I did it. I'm building my portfolio slowly, and Robinhood is helping me do it. It's a really, really great opportunity. Bilton.robinhood.com. Well, I'll just leave you with this one thought. It's frustrating that there's a sort of like computer science engineer uh, lack of humanity education mindset that uh, is pervasive in in Silicon Valley and in, in the tech sector in, in particular. And when you read statements like the the Boz one that you're quoting, that's where you see that, you know, that they're they're solving, you know, picture the air quotes. I hate that that uh, that phrase. They're solving for, you know, larger societal issues and they're sort of acknowledging that, yeah, okay, maybe uh, along the way there are gonna be some some major mistakes and mishaps and and for a culture and for for a business that is so exact in its its precision of what it's trying to correct, you'd think that they'd be able to uh, to avoid those missteps if, if they were slightly less avaricious. It, it, it's just, it really is as simple as that. But I do wonder, like, in what what does a Facebook Me Too movement look like? Because I do think you're, you're right and you're onto something that it's possible that in the same way that the, it, it took years and years and years for the bow to break against uh, men in particular who would behave terribly, uh, and, and, and abuse power dynamics, there will be some sort of bow breaking with Facebook. Yeah, and, and it'll 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 have its own cultural moment where it it it, it um, absorbs the shock of something with the, the consequences of Me Too in this country. I I don't know if it's going to happen. Oh, I think it'll it happen, happen in Europe too. I think it'll happen. in but Europe. I don't, I don't think it'll happen in Africa or Asia. I, I think that it's uh, it's a different product in 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 South America, uh, Africa, and, and to the extent it exists in Asia. I think it'll. Um It'll happen in Europe before it happens here, but I do think you're right. I think that that the delete Facebook hashtag is not is not it. I think it's it's in the same way there was a Me Too movement. There'll probably be a Not Me movement where people are like, I am not going to let this product be a part of my life. I'm not going to let them track me and deliver ads to me. Um, 
and uh, the the only the, the hope I have is that the, the the best case scenario for me is Facebook gets broken up. That that there's Facebook, mm-hmm. there's Instagram, there's WhatsApp. They're run by different people, uh, and um, and that is the only way Mark Zuckerberg learns how much he fucked everything up. Um, other than that, it's regulation as far as like what people can what they labels they have to put on things like that are negligible i think that that the company needs to be broken up so there's that <clears throat> all right moving on to bigger brighter and more orange things um it's been a pretty rough week for donald trump huh at the at the white house i mean you've got you've got your revolving door you've got him making a fool out of himself in ways that he hasn't done in in, in hours um uh and now you've got mattis resigning so um can you tell me because uh, i don't get it i don't understand what's going on i haven't been looking at the news for about four or five minutes can you tell me what what this whole mattis thing means i know mattis and trump actually have a really good relationship uh so what's actually going on here well no one can definitively um say precisely what's going on here but it seems like there are a number of of related data points, you know, Trump sort of conceded on the wall recently, and now he's, it seems like he's potentially willing to hold the government hostage over his wall um, as, as Christmas uh, arrives, and and he appears to be bracing for a ugly 2019, one in which indictments seem to be forthcoming, uh, one in which <clears throat> a, a Democratic-led Congress is, is pretty much uh, swearing to make his life hell, it's possible his taxes will be released. Um, uh, he's trying. Trump is trying to make some uh, some last minute campaign promises to to stir up his base. I, I think that his uh, redoubled insistence on the wall is one of them. I think that the uh, withdrawal of, of troops from Syria is another. It seems like that's an incident that. Uh, Played a significant role, maybe even antecedent, in in Mattis's resignation. And then I think that's scary right now. I mean, this will be dated by the time people are listening to this. But I'm just like hitting refresh on my computer. Um, CNN's reporting that that aides are terrified that Trump is going to pull out of Afghanistan. Which, if true, um, we would be surrendering uh, our our forces in not just a a very crucial part of the Middle East, or I guess. Um, uh, an area also where, where where Russia has an engagement, but also in like uh, you know a a core of uh, the the American the larger American defense strategy, and withdrawn from Afghanistan. I'm I'm not a, a geopolitical scholar, but it opens up all kinds of really terrifying questions about Pakistan, uh, Iran. Um, you know it. it it seems that, that Trump is is trying to check boxes and being absolutely um, foolhardy. And this is, I mean, this is like, this is terrifying. I mean, this is terrifying. Hopefully uh, somebody gets to him or, as Bob Woodward noted, in fear that, that there's some sort of Gary Cohn figure who just like gets the memo off his desk before he signs it. Yeah, what's so, what's so fascinating is um, I just was reading uh, Mattis's um, letter of resignation, there's not a word of Trump in there. So maybe, you know, that, that wants 
solid relationship is is no longer. But essentially, it seems that what it's come down to is that that Mattis is saying that he is more aligned with our allies than he is with our own president, and um, and he can't do it anymore. Well, I think he just doesn't want. I think he he just doesn't doesn't want any potential blood in his hands. Um, yeah, and. You know, the, the administration ha- is going to have more staff defections, and it's going to have a very hard time replacing people. You know, uh, uh, our colleague Gabe Sherman had a fantastic detail in a story he reported this week that the reason why they're calling Mick Mulvaney acting chief of staff is because there there is some fear that, like, you know, what if he and Trump have a falling out soon? I mean, M- Mulvaney, uh, as we now know, called the guy basically a, a disgrace <laughs> during the campaign. So the, the people closest to Trump realize that the the small circle is getting even smaller and <clears throat> excuse me he has a lot of appointments to make and they are crucial crucial appointments and then we're, we're led to believe that he's gonna spend the next 16 days playing golf and, and just just fucking around in his dining room in mar-a-lago i um i'm i, I think the the most exciting part of all this though is what is it how many days i don't know like two weeks before we get the new house and um and then a little more than that yeah but a couple of weeks, whatever, two, three weeks. But it's, uh, I think that that's when we're really going to start to kind of see some changes happen. I don't know. Maybe I'm being naive in saying that and hoping that the government will actually do something. Well, no, I think you're right. I, I think Elijah Cummings and, and Adam Schiff, you know, who oversee really important um, ethics and investigative committees, are <clears throat> you know champing at the bit to 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 roll out a red carpet of uh, of investigations and and you know one um, one sort of plot line that I'm following very closely is the effort to get Trump's taxes, you know, which are, um, you know, I think a Senate oversight committee could um, uh, petition or potentially subpoena, uh, I'm not a legal scholar or jurisprudential scholar, but they could subpoena the IRS, which falls underneath Mnuchin, and they'd have to view them privately. Things in Washington always seem to leak. Mnuchin might be in a position where he has to... um, uh, push back. I, I part of me. This is just the conspiracy theorist to me. Wonders if one reason why Mnuchin wasn't moved into the chief of staff job was because being at Treasury right now is a a, a very valuable um, asset. Having a, a, having a, a real uh, ally sycophant to Treasury is a major asset for Trump, who certainly I presume wants to keep those uh, IRS documents confidential, since it, it seems that it, the, the long search for any financial relationship between Trump and and uh, Russian lenders, which is at the heart of, it seems to be at the heart of the Mueller probe, uh, will be in there. It'll be, it'll be hard to avoid. Well, it's going to be an exciting 2019. I hope for all that is sacred that we don't spend every episode of 2019 talking about Donald Trump unless it's his impeachment or his resignation. I don't care, honestly. I, I, I'm down for it. I mean, You're, we are living are in extraordinary sadistic. times. Sadistic. No, it, it, it's not sadistic. I, I, I'm not saying that. Um, uh, I'm not saying we're going to miss this when it's over because, because you know, moves like withdrawing troops from Syria and potentially from Afghanistan are are, are truly terrifying. But th- this is certainly the the most engaged in um, in in current events uh, America's ever been in Americans have ever been in our lifetime. And in some funny way, the, the the fact that people are like so concerned with with real matters of state is is heartening. Uh, I'd rather be talking about Trump than some stupid, you know, uh, holiday movie. Well, I I totally I completely agree. But but the thing is, um, I 
I think that the problem is, and this is my last point, and then I'll I'll let you go because we have a we have a lot to talk about next week. But the 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 problem is, I think, is when you kind of look at look back at 2018. You've got Michael Wool's fire and fury. You've got Rob Porter resignation. I mean, like each each week is is something else. The Washington Post um, uh, reporting that Trump said that certain countries are shithole countries. Yeah, I forgot mean, about that. You know, like. Um, Secretary of Veteran Affairs withdrawing his consideration for nomination. Uh, Kelly Sadler was caught mocking disease. Sen- Senator McCain. Like, I mean, we can just go through them, and none of them matter. Like, there's only, like, four or five of them that actually probably really matter. And most of them were just dumb stories um, that are uh, that are just pointless. And, and I, what I hope is that we start to, to kind of – sift out what is important and what is not because um if one thing is certain 2018 was a year where we we wasted a whole lot of time on dumb things that trump wanted us talking about yeah you're, you're probably right but let's let's see what's in the Mueller report um because yes. yes. we, we may have all wasted our time i'm not denying that but but i doubt that he did yeah yeah we'll see drum roll all right john all right well merry christmas nick i'll talk to you next week and just right, fyi i'm not going to respond to your texts emails faxes or anything until then We'll talk about that. (laughs) Thanks to my guest today, Jason Fried, and of course, the wonderful, fabulous, soon to no longer have a job in the White House, John Kelly. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. That is me. You can find this on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a beautiful, gorgeous, astounding amazing review while you're there thanks to folks at cadence 13 for their production work and thanks most of all to my sponsors dropbox the new yorker and robin hood please support them the same way you support this podcast i will see you all next week for the final installment of inside the hive in 2018 it's going to be a good one don't miss it There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. From P-